1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Daniel Reiche and Tamir Sorek, editors of their new book, Sport, Politics, and Society in the Middle East. It's a pleasure to have you both uh, for the program. Welcome, Daniel Reiche and Tamir Sorek.
2: Thank you, James, for including us in your excellent program. Thank you, James.
1: My pleasure. Maybe we can start off with uh, Daniel first, maybe, and then uh, Tarek, telling, telling us a little bit about what your, what your intellectual history is, if you wish, <laughs> and how that intellectual history brought you to editing this volume, as well as earlier books that each of you have written independently. sports in the Middle East.
2: Okay, so uh, different to Tamir who did uh, already his PhD on sports as he might explain in a minute, uh, all my degree work was on energy and environmental policy in a comparative perspective and my specific interest was on policies for the promotion of renewable energies. However, once I became a professor Uh, I started to develop a class on the politics of sports. And one of the reasons for my interest was that after moving to Beirut in 2008 to become an assistant professor at that time at the American University of Beirut, um, I uh, uh, realized how um, much uh, sport and politics uh, are mixing in Lebanon. Uh, and I worked on a first case study an article, uh, and article entitled uh, uh, War Miners the Shooting the Politics of Sport in Lebanon, where I showed that all the major uh, football and basketball clubs uh, have uh, political and uh, even religious affiliations. So, uh, with this article, who has been published in Third World Quarterly, my intellectual journey uh, uh, in the field of sports started, and uh, I have uh, published a number of articles since then. I published in twenty sixteen a book uh, with Routledge on um, success and failure of countries at the Olympic Games, where I specifically looked at government policies to, um, um, to uh, achieve uh, sporting success um, in uh, the Olympics. And now I've edited with uh, Tamir the book Sport, Politics and Society in the Middle East, uh, which we will discuss later on.
1: And Tamir, this has been sort of the outset of your career.
0: Uh well yeah I uh I was a graduate student in sociology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in the mid 90s and it was the time when the, for the first time an Arab team made it to the uh top uh, Israeli division in uh, soccer uh so I I became curious about this phenomenon and I uh, decided to look closely I counted how many Arab teams are represented in the various uh, Israeli leagues And I found out that there are 42% of the teams, while there are only 17% of the uh, citizens. So in that moment, I felt like there is something much deeper to investigate here. And uh, this moment was the departure to my uh, dissertation about uh, Arab soccer in Israel, uh, which later uh, developed into my uh, first uh, published book. Um later in my career, I tried to take another direction. I uh, studied the Palestinian commemoration in Israel. Uh, recently, I uh, published a biography of the Palestinian poet Taufik Zayad. But uh, what happened is that uh, I became known as uh, this uh, uh, specialist of sports in the Middle East. And back then, 20 years ago, uh, it was not a common uh, phenomenon of scholars writing about sports in the Middle East. So I was dragged by uh, uh, other scholars to continue and work on it, and I found uh, frequently that I enjoyed. So I published other articles about sports, uh, about uh, boxing, um, in, in uh, Arab boxing in Israel, and about the internal Jewish ethnic tensions in Is- Israel and soccer, and uh, in 2017, uh, Daniel and I we were invited to uh, the uh, workshop uh, in uh, Qatar by a uh, uh, Georgian University in uh, Doha. And uh, the uh, topic of the sports was uh, of the workshop was sports in the Middle East. Uh, they invited uh, scholars who specialize in different countries and uh, in different disciplines. And uh, this was the uh, background for the uh, edited volume uh, that we were asked to edit following this uh, workshop. Um, So uh, unlike uh, Daniel, I I made the other way around. I started in sports. I tried to uh, leave the field, but it's uh, in a way, it's addictive. There is something so dramatic and emotional about uh, this field of sport that I think I will continue to find myself writing on eighteen why we're on another for the rest of my, of my career. Well you've actually
1: touched on something which uh is I, I think important in terms of the book, uh in terms of the background to the book, if you wish. And that is that uh Middle Eastern studies really was the one uh area of of geographic or area studies uh globally which almost neglected uh up until yeah 15, 20 years ago, and maybe even less, almost neglected the, uh, the sports aspect of, uh, of, the, of the region. And I'm wondering why that is, if you have a sense of why that is. It's now something that's starting to grow, and you see more people doing dissertations and publishing on it, but it really took a
2: very long time. That's right. And I believe one of the reasons why there's not so much interest in sport in the Middle East um, are the Gulf countries and their uh, investments into sports. Um, Now uh, it made the headlines that Saudi Arabia is interested in uh, uh, um, buying an English Premier League club, Newcastle United. If they are allowed to do so, they would do something that Qatar already started 25 years ago. In 1993, they hosted the first ATP tennis tournament with the German Boris Becker. I have to mention this since I'm German, winning the tournament. And uh, so Qatar has hosted many, 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 many sporting events. So, hosting the FIFA World Cup 2022, which draws now a lot of uh, attention, but it's more. it's not like the beginning of a journey. It's like a, a, a part of a process that started in the early 90s with like hosting annual uh, sporting events, which hosting like continental and global championships. Uh, that's one. Uh, second is that um, uh, some Gulf countries heavily invested into global sports. I mean, the most prominent examples are Qatar Um uh, by its investment for uh, owning Paris Saint-Germain and uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, Manchester City. But um, most remarkable uh, are the uh, 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 sponsorships uh, all over the world uh, by Middle Eastern airlines uh, like uh, Emirates and Qatar Airways, who sponsor so many clubs um, all over the world. Uh, Maybe the most difficult uh, part uh, is to achieve own sporting success. Um, So uh, here is still a lot to do. Uh, I mean, Qatar has invested in this world-class facility, the Aspire Academy, which trains uh, local uh, talent. Um, But I think that's the main reason why we have so much interest uh, uh, in the Middle East now um, because uh, the um, Gulf countries, uh, but uh, also Turkey, I mean, they hosted, uh, they, they belong in sport not to uh, Asia like the Gulf countries, they belong to Europe. And they hosted, for example, the uh, a Champions League final in 2005, but many, many other sporting events as well. They unsex- unsuccessfully were bidding for uh, a number of Summer Olympic Games. Um, but no, so what we Witness is that uh, centers and peripheries in global sports are changing. I mean, the center in soccer used to be Europe and South America. In Olympic sport, it used to be uh, Europe and North America and a bit Southeast Asia. And now we have uh, a former periphery uh, moving to the center, uh, which is uh, parts of the Middle East to become pretty successful in hosting events, but uh, also in, uh, for example, there is an international headquarter of the International Cricket Association in the UAE. So on many levels, um, the Middle Eastern countries, in particular the Gulf countries and Turkey, uh, have been have have uh, moved from the periphery to the center in global sports.
1: Dame before you add on to this, uh, let me just... Uh ask you something very specifically, which is that if you look at Israeli scholarship, that was one of the very few exceptions, I think, in Middle Eastern, in scholarship on the Middle East and scholarship in the Middle East, that quite early on focused on sports and the the relationships uh, that sports has in society and politics. Uh, And there are a fair number of Israeli scholars who've been dealing, like you, with this for quite some time. I wonder why that is.
0: Well, I think we should frame the discussion in the broader uh, issue of uh, the sociology of knowledge in the Middle East. uh, And then we can talk about the particular Israeli uh, uh, case. Um, I think historically, not only in the study of the Middle East, but uh, this academic study of sport has been marginal in the academic world. Um, it is because it is considered to be part of leisure, not of work, which is the serious issue that uh, scholars should work on um, It is considered a field a childish field because it is by playing, it is a game uh, It has it has taken a while for scholarship uh, generally to take sport seriously. So uh, we begin from a position of marginality. Now, add to that the traditional study of the Middle East by the West, uh, which was based uh, originally on Orientalist uh, perspective in anthropology, also in history, aimed at uh, creating, defining the Middle East uh, as traditional, as backward. Bringing into this discussion modern sports did not fit this uh, epistemological framework. Uh, so you take the marginality of sports in general and you take uh, this Orientalist uh, look at the Middle East and you can understand why there were no studies of sports by Western scholars. And when we st- talk about academic scholarship, usually uh, we refer to the center of power, uh, Western Europe and uh, and the United States. Now, when uh, since the late 70s, there are more and more studies of uh, the Middle East in the West, which uh, have attempted to take a distance from this Orientalist uh, framework, they wanted to establish themselves as serious scholarship, and they were very careful not to be associated with the uh, marginal field of sports. So you have a delay of, I think, two decades uh, between the um, emergence, or at least the acceleration of non-Orientalist studies of the Middle East and the moment when scholar of the Middle East said also, ah, sports is also part, an important part of the history of society of the Middle East, and uh, it, it makes sense to pay attention to it. I think it's it's a question of how confident you are in uh, in your position as a, in the uh, uh, map of academic scholarship. So uh, Israel is a little bit different here uh, because. Uh, Israeli scholars did not see themselves uh, part uh, of the Middle East in in many ways, and also if you take myself for example, uh, I I was close to the field of the Middle East and, and the sport of the Middle East. By uh, I've been privileged enough to have the self confidence to. Uh, start to study something that everyone considered uh, marginal. I must say that even though you mentioned that uh, Israeli uh, scholarship of sports emerged relatively early, and I agree with you, but even in this case, it was late. My PhD uh, was the first PhD in uh, the sociology of sport uh, in Israel at the time, and I uh, started to work on it in the late 90s. Uh, The book of Amir Ben Porat about uh, Apoel Taibe also was published during uh, the same time. Uh, Previously, there were very few articles on on, uh, sports uh, in Israel. So the Israeli case is slightly earlier, but not much earlier than the study of sports in um, other areas of the Middle East. What happened in the last two decades, and I think uh, indirectly Daniel referred to it earlier, is when it turned out that a sport is a huge business in the Middle East, uh, it enabled more uh, uh, scholarly attention from Western scholars. So uh, half of the uh, articles, half of the chapters in our book, uh, they're coming from fields of uh, business and uh, management, uh, and it is partly related to this uh, economic development.
1: Actually, uh, there's one other major exception, I think, and that's Algeria. Going back to the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, as a result of the Algerian uh, liberation struggle, which takes me really to my first question, directly related to your book, and and that is that a dominant underlying theme seems to be the relationship of politics and sports. And I was wondering if you were to take a bird's eye view of the last century. What trends do you see that persistently over time cut across national borders? Um, And maybe, I don't know, Danielle. do you want to take a first stab and then?
2: Yeah, I think while it might be boring to to quote something, but I would like to do it at this point because I think what is summarizing quite well uh, our thoughts are two of the last sentences in uh, the introduction, which state, the common thread in this volume is that sports in the Middle East are much more than an interesting angle through through which to popularize academic themes; they are themselves a major political and economic force that not only reflect but also shape both individuals' lives and in large-scale social processes.
1: Thomas, do you want to add something?
0: Yeah, I think something that both is both common to uh, Middle East countries and in a way distinguish them from um, the development in the uh, United States and in Europe is that sport uh, has been uh, a representation of Western institutions uh, in the Middle East. And by being a representative of the West, uh, they became a points of struggle, a point of contention. Uh, when local elite uh, sometimes try to uh, modernize their society, and I'm saying modernize in quote because it was based on a certain conception of modernity. For them, modernization meant westernization. They wanted to develop their. uh, these uh, westernized elites, wanted to modernize their society based on the uh, model of Western modernity, and sport has been a tool for them to achieve that. Um, uh, more recently, uh, you see, uh, you know, you, no, not, not even recently. You can, I think, I think you can see it from an early stage, when some elements in their society, exactly because sport was Westerns, um, developed some objection to this, it's, not particularly to the idea of physical activity, but to particular uh, Western sports. Um you can see, for example, when uh, Islamist political uh, movement emerged, uh, they saw Western sports as part of the problem and uh, criticized it. In the long term, what we see is that even these um, Islamist political movements had to concede and basically try to include Western sports instead of fighting it, trying to use the popular power or the power of sports to mobilize people. Uh, in order uh, to promote their own agenda, and they stopped fighting it. Um, another tension that you might see, and you can, uh, I think, uh, uh, the uh, chapter of Murat Yildiz in the book uh, discuss it, is the tension between uh, seeing sports as fun and sports as a disciplinary tool, uh, sports as a tool that can... Uh, uh, develop certain uh, traits of the self, such as uh, uh, self-discipline that might benefit uh, for society. So this is another tension that you see, particularly in Middle Eastern sport. And both of them are related in a way to the colonial uh, domination of the Middle East. uh, Because for, uh, and this is well documented in certain countries, uh, especially the British uh, thought that uh sports might be a way for them uh, to co-opt the uh, local elite. you can also see it in the case of Israel in its relation to the Palestinian citizens of Israel there was certainly a certain uh, conscious uh, efforts by the state to uh, co-opt the local elite by uh, using sports and what we see uh, again in the long term that this these uh, same uh, attempts to uh, use sports to control, were turned upside down where uh, the indigenous people of the Middle East uh, adopted it and used it as uh, a stage for anti-colonial protest and sometimes a protest against uh, the uh, state itself. You
1: know, what struck me as I read the various contributions to the book was that in terms of what we're talking about, there seemed to be two countervailing trends that emerged. One was top-down with political elites seeing sports, and particularly football, as a means to project identity, foster attitudes conducive to creating a defense force, garner soft power. The other is bottom-up, using sports as a vehicle for resistance against colonial power uh, or uh, uh, post-independence state power, assertion of identity, and the fight for a whole array of rights, whether human, ethnic, religious, women, or national. Would you agree with that sort of reading or assessment?
2: Yes, I think that's an excellent summary, James. Uh, we have uh, bottom up processes like in uh, Jordan, where football is uh, maybe the only arena where Palestinians can express a sense of Palestinianness by. Uh, supporting the Waqfied uh, Football Club, who is, by the way, pretty successful. Uh, there are no other um, opportunities for Palestinians uh, in Jordan. Uh, it's not Palestinian history is not taught in schools. There are no like museums of Palestinian history and so on. So uh, the stadium became only mainly, maybe the only arena where they can express sense of. Uh, Palestinianist I mean, uh, uh, Tamir can later on talk about his contribution on the Harpoet Tel Aviv fans because here we have a bit of a similar case where uh, 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 um, secular uh, 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 liberalism in Israel is—that's uh, 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 his argument—in in crisis. But at, at, by supporting this club, it's also a way to express a sense of Israeliness that it's uh, that is different from like. Uh, what is mainstream at the moment uh, in the country. So, yes, so this applies to the bottom-up processes. Um, But you are totally right, James. The the state uh, plays a major role in uh, uh, many Middle Eastern countries when it comes to sports, and particularly when we look at those countries that have heavily invested into sports like the Gulf countries, uh, Turkey, Uh, But we can also see the limits of such a top-down approach. I mean, uh, uh, in Turkey, billions of dollars have been invested to build new stadiums. But uh, when it comes to sport participation, it's still quite low. Uh, The author of our chapter on on Turkey, Professor Shem Tinas from Istanbul Birgit University, he's not only a professor for sport management, but also a member of the Turkish Tennis Federation, a board, and uh, he writes that there are less than t- five thousand people playing tennis in Turkey. That's a country of eighty million people. So, and we have in the Gulf countries the problem that on the one hand uh, the countries heavily invest into football, but on the other hand they have to realize that it's very difficult to uh, realize uh, to 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 change uh, uh, um, uh, attitudes of the population overnight. Um, and, uh, uh, so if we look at Qatar, for example, it's a, a pretty academically oriented society. And, um, so there is, uh, many families do not consider it as valuable to, uh, uh to, uh, um, uh, um, aim for a sporting career. And it's even worse when it comes to, to women. I mean, uh, we have a chapter on, uh, uh female football in Qatar. Uh, and we can see here uh, it's happening, but it's only happening in uh, in environments where no men are present. And when uh, the, the, the uh, national Qatari women's football team is uh, not active at the moment, you know, they're not even listed in the FIFA World Ranking. And if a country is not listed, it means it has been inactive for more than 18 months. I know myself, I once interviewed a former coach of the Qatar national women's football team. And she said to me, it was really uh, frustrating. She went to the schools, uh, she looked at the girls playing, and many talented uh, uh, girls were there. But when she would invite them to the uh, practice of the national team, the families would not allow it because they would know if a girl plays in the national team, this would involve uh, male audiences, uh, uh, broadcasting on TV, etc. And um, that's something that is at this point not accepted um, as um, uh, 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 to concur with the values of the country. So here we can see the limits of such a top-down approach. So it might work to uh, purchase uh, a major football clubs uh, uh, abroad. It might work to stage uh, uh, mega sporting events, um, but. Um, uh, activating the population to practice sport and uh, particularly uh, uh, um, uh, 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 for, for women uh, to allow a uh, uh, higher sporting participation uh, uh, remain uh, quite uh, um, uh, difficult uh, challenges
0: i think in the case of women participation uh, at least in the in the uh, chapters that we present in the book we a, see that a, without a pressure from the bottom, without uh, the insistence of women to take things into their hand, to enter the field, to participate, it won't happen. Uh, we did not see much support uh, from the state, from the policy. And even when it happens, it's sometimes uh, in answer to some uh, external pressure uh, and uh, not a comprehensive policy of the state, like we can see, when the when states like Turkey decides to invest in building building stadiums, they do it uh, with uh, lots of enthusiasm. So, especially in the in the case of uh, women participation, uh, this is something that really uh, comes. It, it it is more a grassroots movement than a result of a policy. I, uh, uh, if you agree, Daniel.
2: Yeah, I mean, Turkey and Lebanon are a bit outliers. When they send delegations to the Olympics, usually uh, half of the delegations are women. Um, But uh, I totally concur with what you said on the external pressure. Uh, When Saudi Arabia sent for the first time in 2012 uh, women to the Olympic Games, it was only because uh, International Olympic Committee, IOC, Threatens that they might be expelled from the Olympics if they don't start sending women to the Olympics. I mean needless to say that this was rather symbolic, and as the women in the Saudi Arabia team was an expat from. From the US. So here we can see that uh, it needs both. Uh, if you don't have a, an, uh, a combination of uh, a top down support and a bottom up um, uh, developments, uh, then uh, there is uh, a failure. And maybe this is uh, the uh, largest uh, challenge in uh, uh, most. Not all countries of the Middle East. There are some exceptions: Israel, Lebanon, Turkey. But for for most countries in the Middle East, the biggest challenge in sport is the promotion of 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 female sporting participation.
1: Sticking for a moment still with the role of the state, it also strikes me, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, that you know this relationship that's, that you see, in particularly in the Middle East, between sports and politics, on how that has shaped sports and sports governance in the Middle East. Tama, do you want to go first? Could, could you please repeat? I... My, my question was basically you have this very uh, almost incestuous relationship between sports and politics in the Middle East. And so the question is, how, did, how has that shaped sports on the one hand and on the other hand, how has it shaped sports governance in the region?
0: Um, we, the, As you say, the, the relations are uh, very complicated. And I think here the particular partners are uh, they are context uh, dependent. Um, and I, I will take from the example that where I know uh, the most, which is uh, in Israel, that uh, the Palestinian infrastructure of sport was completely destroyed in 1948 when the uh, urban city of modern Palestine were destroyed in uh, Jaffa, in uh, Haifa, and uh, after the war, uh, the Israeli military regime uh, in a, that was imposed on the Arab citizens of Israel wanted to use sports as a tool to co-opt and uh, discipline. The Palestinian citizens of Israel. So there was a particular political goal and uh, sports has been a tool. And uh, but what happened in the long term is um, that gradually, and this is something that we can see maybe the peak of the process only in recent years, uh, Palestinian fans, adopted sports not only as a way to uh, become Israelis, but as a form of political protest against the state. Now, this transition from sports as a disciplinary tool is something that we uh, could see uh, also in other Uh, contexts. James, you mentioned earlier uh, Algeria. Uh, In Algeria also, uh, you had Algerian uh, players in the French national team when Algeria was an integral part of France. But one of them, uh, Rashid Mekloufi, uh, organized the other players to establish the uh, team of the FLN uh, that became a symbol of anti-colonial uh, uh, resistance during the uh, Algerian war. Uh, and here you can see here another example how the original political goal that was assigned to sport was turned upside down. You can see uh, in the history of um, Egypt also, like uh, the club of uh, Azamalek, that was uh, the uh, first uh, sport uh, club in Cairo. It originally was populated by a westernized elite, um, certainly not a bastion of national anti-colonial project, but with the emergence of uh, the, uh, the competition with uh, Al-Ahli, uh, Al-Ahli became, uh, with the years, a bastion of nationalism and uh, you could see how in the arab spring not only a nationalism but also a, a protest against the government that uh, many uh, in egypt saw as not a government that is representing the people and al ali uh, was a, became both the representation of the struggle but also practically they provided a uh, stage uh, for presenting the protest, and also the, the ultras fans had experience with confronting the police and therefore they could guide other protesters during the Arab Spring. A similar phenomenon even um, happened in uh, Turkey with the uh, hardcore fans of certain Istanbulian teams were leading uh, the Gazi protest uh, uh, several years ago against uh, neoliberalism. In the country. So uh, there is a constant tension in the Middle Eastern countries between sports being a possible tool for the authorities, either previously colonial authorities, but in modern days, uh, the state authorities, and it also has the potential to be a a tool of protest of anti establishment um, trends in society.
1: In the introduction that both of you co-authored, you draw a distinction between strong and weak states and suggest that part of the solution in strong states is greater private sector involvement, while corruption is the major issue in weak states. Uh, The question is, isn't corruption, whether political, financial, or in sports performance, an issue across the Middle East and North Africa, irrespective of the nature of the state?
2: Yes, that's true. And, uh, I mean, we just need to look at uh, our international uh, Daniel, you indexes you of corruption where Middle Eastern countries are usually not ranked well. Uh, but I, I, I think the uh, argument we wanted to make is that um, there are some countries where the entire sports sector is um, a totally uh, a, a state-driven and state-dominated. Uh, If we look uh, at Qatar, for example, all the um, clubs in the Qatar Stars League, in the um, um, professional football league, uh, they're all government-owned. And um, we can also see in Turkey, for example, where there was now a big program of uh, building new stadiums um, um, financed uh, by by the government. So uh, here uh, these countries have the challenge uh, of having more private involvement in the sports sector. We have in the weak countries like Lebanon the opposite. Um, the uh, government uh, uh, fails in properly supporting uh, the sports system and uh, what only works is um, private initiative. We can see that uh, athletes who uh, compete for a country like Lebanon in the Olympics are usually middle, upper, middle, upper class because the parents do the job that uh, the state should do by like, promoting the sporting career of their children. And um, if we look at sporting events in Lebanon, a big success is the Beirut Marathon uh, this is uh, privately organized. It's a big success. People from all over the world go there to participate. It's, by the way, also very inclusive because it goes through different neighborhoods, the difference to the uh, Marathon in Jerusalem, for example. So that's a great event, um, and but it's privately organized. So the, the relationship of, of the state and the society is quite different from country to country. We see a strong state involvement in the Gulf and in Turkey. And we see more reliance on the private sector in weaker countries such as Lebanon.
1: Tamar, do you want to add, add anything? Uh,
0: well, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the field of corruption, so I will uh, leave the expertise of Daniel to uh, speak here.
1: Uh, if I may, Daniel, coming back to the issue of the private sector, I mean, as you said very early on in this conversation, Lebanon is sort of an odd man out in the Middle East. I mean, what you more generally see, and you certainly see that in the Gulf, uh, that the private sector is hardly independent and almost singularly dependent on the state. Uh, and so the question is whether if you were to start try, trying to motivate the private sector to become more involved and to play a role uh, at a more independent contribution, then you're really talking about structural reform you know the kind of reform that the Gulf has been talking about, and other Arab states have been talking about for a very long time, but have yet to be, yet to implement.
2: Yes, that's true.
1: Uh, going coming going further, you know, in the chapter on Turkey, which Cem Tinas wrote, he discusses the promotion of elite sports and the pursuit of mega event hosting rights in a bid to enhance Turkey's international prestige and polish its image tarnished by human rights abuse and regional Mm -hmm. military adventure at the expense of stimulating the development of grassroots. Uh, Would you say that's an example of the problems that are involved in what is essentially an unregulated relationship between sports and politics? And if not, what would you suggest that uh, Jem's chapter represents?
2: No, the uh, argument from a sham who interviewed uh, several uh, uh, former ministers of sport and who looked at uh, the time of uh, uh, the uh, since the AKP is governing Turkey, uh, which started in 2002. So he's looking since 2002 and uh, the chapter relies on interviews with former ministers of sport. And the argument he makes is that there is too much focus on mega sporting, hosting mega sporting events, and on building stadiums, uh, rather than on supporting grassroots sports. And uh, I already presented the example of of tennis, with less than five thousand people playing tennis. But even in 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 the national sport of soccer. Um, we can see that in the national team there are always many uh, diaspora players from Germany, for example. And um, so Turkey is not doing well in uh, supporting uh, grassroots sports. And uh, Shem argues that uh, maybe the biggest failure is uh, when it comes to the education system and to include uh, the promotion of uh, a sport into the education systems. So that's the main argument. Um, of the chapter, so uh, here we can see that Turkey um, uh, mainly uses sport for foreign policy purposes and to give pride to the population by giving them the impression that the country would return to like a former greatness. Uh, but um, yeah, on the ground, uh, when it comes to grassroots sports, uh, the country is uh, far behind.
0: And I believe what Daniel mentioned uh, about Turkey uh, here uh, is com- it's coming to uh, other countries in the Middle East. Actually, in the uh, chapters in our books, uh, there is no uh, single case, uh, any evidence that a, a country is investing significantly in grassroots sports most uh, yeah, most of the support comes exactly for this pers- purpose to provide a symbolic pride symbolic uh, collective pride for the uh, citizens of the state and for, to increase the international stature of a country uh, but certainly not a serious investment in grassroots sports
2: Yeah, so the Middle East is kind of the opposite to Scandinavia. Scandinavia doesn't really care uh, about hosting major events, doesn't really care about like big successes in the Olympics. So uh, most Scandinavian countries won most of their medals in the first part of the 20th century, but they really want to support grassroots sports. That's what matters for them. And here we see the opposite, that we have mainly foreign policy goals and uh, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, contribution to like uh, national pride, etc. Uh, but 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 what should be always uh, at the forefront of each sport policy to support that every human being can practice the sport he or she wants to practice. Uh, uh, here, uh, uh, there is still a lot to do in the in the, in the entire region.
0: And I have to say something here. I have concern that uh, the growing power of the private sector will not solve this problem. Um, uh, the uh, the private sector is interested in consumption, not in practicing by itself. Sometimes uh, they uh, they can come together, but not necessarily. So it, I, I do not see that uh, the development or the private sector will solve this problem.
2: Yeah, it's necessary to have more private involvement, but the state, of course, remains the key. Uh, What what happens when the private sector plays a key role, we can also see in Lebanon, in, in soccer, where we have now a lot of private academies, but it costs like $100 to subscribe. A kid in such an academy, uh, and that's in a country with an average income of thousand dollar per month. So uh, here, the entire like uh, class composition of the sport is now changing from a uh, uh, middle, from a lower middle to a middle upper class sport. So uh, I concur with uh, um, uh, 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 Tamir. So the role of the state is very important to um, uh, to make sure that. Um, Uh, sport is integrated into the education system, uh, that there are uh, are enough uh, facilities um, available, um, that um, there are uh, good coaches, uh, and so on. Uh, However, uh, of course, uh, uh, the the best combination is of uh, strategic planning by the state uh, plus like uh, bottom-up initiatives uh, in society um, to have a proper functioning uh, sporting s- sector.
1: I, I wonder, Daniel, uh, whether to some degree, irrespective of how successful Qatar may be an exception to the rule, because there you've had really an effort to make sports part of a national identity, you have a national sports day, uh, and, and various other things, whether there there's at least not been a nominal attempt to try and, uh, get get a, a grassroots, uh, a more popular buy-in into it?
2: Yes, I think Qatar is uh, doing uh, pretty well. Um, sport has become a national priority. Uh, this National Sports Day that you mentioned is uh, one example. And um, a lot of facilities have been created, uh, uh, foreign coaches with a lot of expertise uh, have come to Qatar to work there. Um, certainly, um, uh, one of uh, the uh, major issues. Uh, uh, there are two major issues in Qatar. One is um, to encourage uh, women and 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 girls, and to um, also to, that there is acceptance by their families when you know they play football, for example. Uh, so here we can see that you can. Uh, uh, invest overnight a lot and have a lot of like successes and changes overnight when it comes to 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 infrastructure, for example, to hosting events. But to change a culture, it, culture, it might take a generation. So the the gender issue is one, and the second issue is of course the involvement uh, of all the. Um, expats uh, in the country because uh, around 90% of the people living in Qatar do not have a Qatari passport and um, and uh, I, I believe that the, the restrictive citizenship law uh, is limiting the potential of the country in sports. Yes uh, if somebody is like really good in sport he or she uh, is naturalized uh, but uh, in the long run, I think if there would be a path towards long-term residence, a path towards uh, citizenship for all the migrants uh, uh, living uh, and working in Qatar, I think also the sports sector would benefit uh, from such a um, liberalization of uh, um, of the nationality law. Uh. Tama,
1: the, the relationship between sports and politics also comes back in Doug Tuastat's chapter on how the football pitch offers a platform for battles of identity in Jordan, as expressed in the memories, uh, or as in the memories in the case of el Wajat, the Palestinian club. Uh, it also comes back in the chants of supporters and the, what that reflects in your chapter about Hapoel tel Aviv. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah so so when we talk about a national identity uh, in every country national identity is a uh, is a contested terrain uh where you have different uh, parts of society different parties uh different sectors uh trying to shape the collective national identity uh to fit their own ideology their own interest and because of the uh, dramatic uh, aura of uh, sports and especially uh, soccer in these countries, uh, uh, you can see uh, the um, one uh, major expression of the fight over collective identity in this field, in the stadium. So uh, both in Israel and in Jordan, uh, you have these uh, two examples. Uh, so uh, in uh, Jordan um part of the population uh, most likely uh, the majority we don't know because there hasn't been any census uh, are uh, most of the population is palestinian uh, the uh, power however is in the hand of the um original inhabitants of um uh, uh, of jordan uh, who are not palestinians and uh, the uh, palestinian national identity uh, is not legitimate in the Jordanian public sphere. Palestinians in Jordan found uh, the stadium, the soccer stadium, as a place where they uh, can uh, present, where they can display their collective national aspiration, their collective uh, national identity, Palestinian national symbols, the pa- Palestinian uh, national flag, Palestinian uh, anthem. Uh, this is the place where um, it was even if not uh, accepted by the state, they had to tolerate it. Uh, sometimes they didn't, uh, but um, sometimes they faced the uh, uh, backlash from uh, fans uh, Jordanian fans who did not like the idea of Palestinian national identity uh, in Jordan. And I remind you that in uh, 1970, there was actually a civil war there between these uh, two elements in Jordan. So this is there is a lot of uh, uh, blood memory uh, in the field when these two identities are, are coming into conflict. Uh, in the chapter I uh, contributed to the volume uh, about Israeli national identity uh, it described the tension between the uh, primordial Jewish code of national identity. Uh, in a way, uh, it is... Um, compatible with the original goal of Zionism to establish a Jewish uh, ethnic state um, in Palestine. Um, And the extreme form of that is uh, uh, the demography of uh, Beitar Jerusalem, a team uh, that never hired an Arab player, uh, a a team that whenever the managers uh, or the owners over the past decades Uh, announced their willingness uh, to uh, hire an Arab player, the fans rebelled against it. Um, So here you have Beitar that is uh, very exclusive toward Arab uh, 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 fans and toward Arab players. On the other edge of this political spectrum, you have a Tel Aviv, a team that traditionally Uh, accepted Arab uh, players since the mid-1970s, it it does not mean that Apollo Tel Aviv is not part of the Zionist project. Uh, It it is certainly part uh, of the original, uh, of the Labour Party that led the Zionist project. Actually, even uh, the stadium of Apollo Tel Aviv, Bloomfield, is located on the same spot uh, of uh, Al Basha Stadium, that was the major Palestinian sports stadium uh, before uh, 1948. Uh, it basically it replaced it. It came on the ruins of the Palestinian sport infrastructure. However, uh, since the team started to uh, include our players in the mid 70s, and gradually, uh, the fans. Adopted this inclusiveness as part of their identity, and they are proud of the fact that they were the first Arab, uh, the first Jewish team to have an Arab captain. Uh, They use this inclusiveness as part of their collective identity, especially when they meet the fans of Bitar uh, Jerusalem. So, what happened throughout the years uh, is that the uh, games, the, the competitions between Beitar, you know, Jerusalem, and Apoel Tel Aviv became also a certain competition between a more ethnocentric Israeli collective identity, excluding Arabs, and a more inclusive definition of a civic Israeli national identity that uh, is Israeli, but uh, is uh, inclusive of uh, Arab Muslim or uh, Christian uh, citizens of Israel. And many fans, especially the, uh, the hard uh, core fans of uh, Apollo Tel Aviv, uh, see uh, this as an ideological struggle and not only a struggle uh, in the field of sports. Uh,
1: Daniel, uh, Craig LeMay, a journalist and journalism professor, discusses the degree in his chapter to which Gata's hosting of a mega event like the World Cup impacts the country's autocratic structures. Are you actually seeing, or is Craig seeing, that the uh, the hosting of the 2022 World Cup is uh, leading to a process of political change in Qatar?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, when uh, we talk about um, media and sport in Qatar, of course, all of us are first thinking about uh, being in sports, um, network of sports channels. Uh, my running gag uh, when working in Lebanon was always I needed like others uh, bread and water because uh, they had the rights for more or less everything. So the German national team, the German league, other major European leagues. So everything I was interested in, I could watch there. Uh, but they have expanded to, to the US, to Australia, to other countries. So uh, BN Sports, uh, of course, is a flagship of, uh, uh, uh Qatar, uh, Qatar's uh, sporting investments. Uh, however, uh, the question, uh, Craig is, uh, more interested in discussing is whether, um, the World Cup will, uh, change norms, uh, 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 for freedom of expression. I mean, when it comes to the, um, uh press freedom index Qatar is not ranked uh, very well. Uh one of the reasons is a uh, uh, recent banning of uh, of the Doha news website. Um, but um I mean they are only state controlled media and and I mean uh, Al Jazeera uh the news channel is um is uh, a, a, a flagship um of Qatar and Uh, uh, it's uh, watched all over the region and uh, I myself uh, always enjoy it watching. They have a lot of uh, critical uh, reporting on like basically anything going on in the region but what is happening in Qatar. So uh, so there is not much of critical reporting about domestic uh, developments in Qatar. So there is a gap uh, uh, in how the channel reports on domestic and foreign affairs. And um, the argument uh, Craig makes is that um, he says that um, um, uh, Qatari media uh, might change towards more like a a critical reporting, but these changes will happen uh, on their own terms. So, Qatar will not become a second Norway and you know uh, um, compete with a country like Norway on the first rank in the Press Freedom Index. But there will be some um, uh, uh, liberations and modernizations, but um, on their own terms, which take some specific um, cultural norms into consideration, such as, for example, the Emir is not like personally criticized.
0: Mm -hmm. And we should add that even though Qatar internationally is ranked low uh, in uh, freedom of of, of press, uh, regionally it is uh, relatively good. So their point of departure compared to other uh, countries uh, in the region uh, is more uh, promising.
2: Yes. I mean, if we compare to other Gulf countries, for example, that's certainly true. I mean, uh, I think one, one, one. you know, James, if I may add this, I mean, uh, there is, I mean, one major issue, I believe, is that um, um, uh, there is a lot of criticism uh, on Qatar and uh, a lot of this might be justified. Uh, but one of the reasons for uh, uh, the criticism is also that uh, Qatar is a relatively open country i mean it starts with that it's easily able to to, to travel to the country uh, so uh, with uh, many nationalities you can just enter the country and obtain uh, the a passport as a visa at the airport so um uh, so this does not apply to other countries, such as Saudi Arabia, for example. And we have like a lot of like international universities there, for example, international research institutions. Uh, and um, so uh, Qatar gets a lot of attention. Uh, but one of the reasons is that it's easily accessible. Um, Lebanon also, for other reasons gets a lot of, like, media and scholarly attention because, uh, you know, uh, there are international universities since the late 19th century. People speak English and French and and so on. So um, some countries get far more attention uh, than others. Um, but um, one of the reasons is that they are, like, easier accessible, that there is more of a tradition of like uh, 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 universities and, and media in and foreign languages, uh, etc. And this also explains, even if we look at this edited volume, I mean, some countries are a bit overrepresented compared with others, uh, but it's, it's simply uh, very difficult to access some countries and it's also very difficult to find authors uh, on some countries um, because they these countries lack traditions of like uh, instructions at schools and universities in English or French, for example, and uh, it's it's for researchers more difficult to access them so I think that um, uh, so for for future research, it would be nice uh if we get more case studies on sport in a country like uh, Yemen. Uh, or uh, Iraq, uh, or um, some of the uh, smaller uh, Gulf countries. There is a lack of scholarship uh, uh, on these countries, and hopefully, it will be uh, we have in the future scholars who manage to do research on these countries. Because what is happening now is that there is a bit; it's not proportional anymore. If we look at the amount of scholarship. Uh, uh, on on Lebanon or uh, 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 Qatar or also Israel. And then we see that there is hardly anything on countries like uh, Yemen uh, or uh, Iraq or Oman or Bahrain.
1: Tama, before we start to round up, uh, I want to focus on one chapter that I thought, at least briefly, um, that I thought was very intriguing, which talked about the way that um, social media impacts how women athletes brand themselves. And I was wondering whether you could talk briefly about that, but also maybe look at what conclusions one could draw for the broader impact of social media on on the relationship, on sports and politics, and the politics of sports in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, Well, uh,
0: the... This chapter uh, by uh, Nida Ahmad, uh, she interviewed and and, uh, analyzed the discourse of uh, female athletes uh, in uh, certain uh, countries in the region. Uh, Now, just to tell you how vulnerable uh, these athletes are, she she was very careful, even not to mention the countries in some cases, uh, because she, they are known athletes and they did not want them to be exposed. So uh, we begin with a very fragile and very vulnerable um, context. This a, a, and the argument uh, she made in the article is that the way they present themselves is very different from the way uh, women athletes. Uh, presents themselves in an uh, online uh, activ- activity in uh, other uh, in other countries. So, um, in what we know about, in, from the initial finding that uh, in other contexts in Western cases, that the Western sport women uh, use social media for self-branding. Um, and uh, they share with the audience um intimate details uh, about their own life, but middle eastern uh, sport women who are active online they're much much more careful uh with what they share with their audience um they have uh they 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 have in mind a will to promote the image of a women's sport to promote the idea that Women can do sports, but everything is really is walking on eggs um, in the Middle East. As much as uh, we show some signs for optimism from uh, women uh, sports activity in uh, some uh, parts of the, of the Middle East, uh, there is still a, a, a much uh, work to do. We are very far from an ideal situation. And I would like to mention that uh, uh, the work of uh, Nida Ahmed in uh, in, uh, in this chapter corresponds very well with three uh, recent documentary movies uh, about women's sport, even more. There, there are uh, several uh, sport documentaries about, documentaries about women uh, soccer in the Middle East uh, in uh, Libya, in uh, Sudan. In Jordan, where in every case, you see that these athletes are supposed to uh, represent their countries. We're talking about the athletes uh, in the uh, national team of these countries. Uh, They have uh, significant struggle. And I I could really watch this move and and imagine uh, the uh, article of uh, Nida Ahmad um, about these athletes when they present themselves online how much pressure they have on them. On the one hand, their will to uh, promote their, their cause. At the same time, they know that there is certain forms of discourse that they cannot measure, certain details that they better not to, to expose.
1: Daniel and Tamer, we could easily go on for another hour, but I fear that we already have passed the one hour mark. <laughs> Before I let you go, perhaps both of you or each of you can describe what's uh, your next project after this book.
2: All right. So I have become quite interested in issues around sport and nationality. Uh, I recently published a paper on naturalization of uh, elite athletes in uh, Qatar and Turkey in comparison. This was a contribution with my Turkish colleague, Tinas, who also contributed a chapter to this book. I wrote another article on the Lebanese rugby league national team, which mainly consists of Australians of Lebanese uh, descent. And um, I just wrote uh, uh, something that's not yet published on stateless athletes uh, in international sport taking the case of Palestinians in Lebanon. And I have another unpublished paper on eligibility criteria by different sporting federations. So uh, I became pretty interested in issues around sport and nationality. And that's also the path I want to follow in the future. I want to be a little bit careful of announcing now uh, future publications. Uh, I think one, I mean, I just mentioned what was already published or papers that are already under review. Uh, but there's certainly more to come in the domain of sport and nationality from me. Um,
0: I've I've just uh, published this uh, week, uh, last week, uh, uh, a biography of the Palestinian poet uh, Taufik Zayad, who is also a political leader, the mayor of Nazareth. Um, And um, this is a a book that takes another angle of the relation between uh, culture and politics, um, as uh, in, if my previous project dealt with uh, sports, uh, here is the, there is a case of someone who was both a poet and a politician. Uh, he worked in uh, parallel patterns because his politics, uh, his poetry was revolutionary, was utopic, uh, touched the sublime, um, aspired to uh, uh, free Palestinians uh, uh, to uh, bring back the uh, the uh, Palestinian refugees, to establish a state uh, uh, based on equality uh, of everyone, to establish a socialist ut- utopia. At the same time, uh, Tafik Zahed was a politician, wear- very down-to-earth. Uh, his politics uh, was uh, very pragmatic. And uh, this book uh, goes and analyzes this fine line between this aspiration for utopic uh, uh, liberation and uh, day-to-day pragmatic politics.
1: Daniel and uh, Tamir, those sound like great projects. I want to thank you both for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Best wishes and take care. Thank you, James.
0: Thank you, James. Uh, Thank you, Daniel.